ability to love you. Increase our perspective of our God. I pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alan Redpath said this, When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. When God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible man and crushes him. One of my very greatest themes in all of Scripture, throughout Scripture, is God's choice of the most unlikely candidate to accomplish his purpose through. Most of the time, as you're walking through your Bible, you see the Lord work through and use instruments that you and I, by nature, would never have picked. And what I also find fascinating with that is when the Lord brings it upon the particular individual that he's going to use them, their response is typically, I can't because, and they give some deficiency. Whether Moses says it's because I can't speak well, or whether it is um, Jeremiah who says I'm a youth, or Solomon who says I don't know my right from my left, I'm just a young man, how could I take on this task? Isaiah, I am ruined Passage after passage where God comes to particular individuals and calls them to a task, their immediate response is, who, me? No way. No way. And the thing is, as you read the storyline, your response is, no way. No way. God uses the most unlikely candidates to accomplish his good purpose in, with the desire to show his power and might, not theirs. Now think about this. He picks... some of the oddest people in the world. How do I know this? Go look in the mirror this afternoon and look at all of us here. What a group of people as far as your different backgrounds, your jobs, where you were raised, where you came from in this country or in this world, and then you're brought together in a local church right here. What a magnificent Reality that the Lord is developing his body, his church. And so I was thinking this morning, I have no doubt in my mind that there, were, that there was not a single believer in the early church in the book of Acts that said, you know, I'm pretty sure Saul of Tarsus is going to be one of the greatest champions for the Christians. He was on the no-way list. There's no way this guy is going to be taken by God and used, him, used by God profoundly to accomplish his purpose. And yet, beloved, he is. The Apostle Paul, the very first word in most English translations and in the Greek text is Paul. It starts off with this guy, Paul. And so I want to look at his self, um, basically his biography, autobiography, in which he has to say about himself in the book of Acts and also here in this first verse in Romans. Because I don't know about you, if somebody gives you a book, everybody's different, I suppose, some folks will look on the back of the book and go, I wonder what this is about. Or you'll look at the title and you'll look at the subtitle, I wonder what this is about. I don't. I look to see where the author went to school. I want, to know, I want to know about the individual who wrote the book. I need to know about the author. I want to know where they're coming from. What's their perspective? 
and typically theological books, obviously, I want to know where they're writing from, theologically. And so if we're going to be reading through this book of Romans, which we believe to be inerrant, inspired by the living God, nonetheless, he did that through a particular human agent, the Apostle Paul, and so I want to know this man. And also, there's 13 letters, books of your New Testament penned by this man. So it's good to know him. Also, it's one of the largest scopes of biography in the New Testament in reference to one particular individual. So I'm going to have you turn quite a bit with me, all right? So if you have your Bible, um, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, raise your hand. Somebody will bring a Bible to you so you can follow along if you'd like to. If not, just track with me. So Acts chapter 7, verse 59. And what we're looking at here, beloved, is Saul prior to conversion. Saul prior to conversion. Acts chapter 7, verse 59. They went on stoning Stephen as he was calling out and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He was delivering them to prison. And if you go to Acts chapter 22... Acts chapter 22, verse 3. And Paul giving it his defense is the context. And if you look at verse 3, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but having been brought up in this city, having been instructed at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strictness of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering both men and women into prisons. And if you look at chapter 26, verse 9, 26, 9. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus, the Nazarene. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them, listen, as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being, very strong language, furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them 
even to foreign cities. And now Philippians chapter 3. All I'm seeking to do, beloved, is I'm going to make a bunch of points about these, but I want you to get kind of this picture, and then I'll go to it. But Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. The context here is the Apostle Paul seeking to guard and protect the Philippians from a group of false teachers who are seeking to combine faith in Christ as well as works of the law. That's who he's referring to of these dogs in verse 2. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless, blameless. So I, I want to give you a, a bit of a flavor of this man before he was saved, before he was born again. He's no slouch in the eyes of man. This is not a man who is just the, the dregs of the world that the Lord came and, and scooped out. This is a man of high esteem. This is a man of a pretty impressive pedigree at this time. A man who has a lot of, quote-unquote, street cred and bragging rights before the Jewish people. If you read what he says there in Philippians, that may not land on your ears with such power as if, wow, that's super impressive. That's because the majority of us, probably all of us, are Gentiles. But to the Jew, to hear those things would be, that is a thoroughbred. For this person to be uh, born of the tribe of Benjamin, for this person to be circumcised on the eighth day, for this person to be raised and, and brought up in this place, to be seen as a Pharisee, to be seen as a persecutor of the church, to be one who was magnificent in his education, magnificent in his pursuit, but not just brainy, passionate in what he was doing ravaging the church. Did you hear the language in the book of Acts? He, he wants to communicate. I was ferocious in how I was persecuting the people of Jesus. You mean even the women? Yep, didn't care. I dragged men and women to prison. I forced them. I intentionally went after them with all I had to get them to blaspheme God. I persecuted them with every fiber of my being. His name was not a name that was uh, treated in a lax, lackadaisical way. He was a man who was feared by the people of God. I'll show you that in, in a bit with Ananias. But here's a guy with a trajectory. And everybody in his camp would have seen that and said, this man is going places. He'd been given authority and power to go and travel and persecute the church. Do away with these Jesus followers. The Apostle Paul would have, had, would have had a magnificent understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. If you had a Bible bowl with Paul, he would have wiped you out, Saul rather. He knew the word. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, if you will. As he understood the Old Testament scriptures, according to the Jewish people, according to the Pharisees at that time, 
Jesus Christ is public enemy number one, and I need to do away with him. Now, think about some believers who are gathering together in somebody's home, and they read a portion of the Old Testament scriptures. They say, oh, this is in reference to Christ. And as they talk about what's going on, how, how could they not at some point say, but you've heard about Saul, right? Yeah, we heard. Did you hear about the authority he's been given? Are you, aren't you scared? Maybe we should start meeting in secret. Maybe we should meet at night instead. Maybe, maybe we should start making, have somebody watch the door. He's going from house to house. Did you catch that in your Bible? This is not Saul going into a city and saying, all right, I need all the Christians to come out to me. No, hot pursuit as he goes from house to house. Christians, no? Okay, next house. Christians, no? Okay, Christians, yes? Let's go. The intensity of the drive within this man and the language the scripture uses to describe that is profound. And I'm saying just from a natural point of view, beloved, that just from a natural point of view, what a driven character. What a man of drive and passion. And I want to say this, and I hope you catch what I mean by this. I believe his passion in that time was a passion to serve God. Remember, Saul believed Jesus was a false teacher. He was not the Messiah. He was a fake, an imposter, a liar who's going to do tremendous harm to the people of God. And so with his passion, he said, not on my watch. No way. I'm going after this cult and try to remove this cult leader's name from this group. That was what was in the mind and heart of this man. Right? No. Dead wrong. Passionate, though? Yeah, absolutely. Utterly misguided, though. Utterly misguided. All right, guys, so go to Acts 9. <clears throat> and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this because I know this passage is probably very familiar to most of you, but I want us to, to at least hear what took place. So Acts chapter 9 Look at verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from them to the synagogues at Damascus so that he found, if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that when he was approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice it didn't sound like that. Although that was pretty on key. <clears throat> Where am I? Okay. Falling to the ground, verse 4, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Lord here is not Lord in the way that he sees Jesus as his Lord and Master, but Lord as Sir. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
but rise up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. Leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here am I, or here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your servants at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And the Lord said, oh, I didn't know that. Now, I don't want to beat up Ananias too much here because all he's doing is he's, he's struck, right? He's awestruck at the reality of what God just told him to do and who to go to. And so you can read that and go, man, Ananias, this is the sovereign omniscient one you're speaking to. What are you doing? Well, he's just caught off guard, way caught off guard. I want you to go, Ananias, and I'm going I'm to have you go to the greatest enemy of our people. And guys, every now and again, don't you find yourself in prayer where you're talking with the Lord and there's a true, beautiful sense of familiarity and friendship with God that you can ask those kinds of questions. God, I, this doesn't make any sense. The Lord didn't stutter. It's crystal clear what Ananias heard. You can tell by the way he repeats to the Lord. But it it's going through his system. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't got it yet. It's not clear in his mind. But Lord, don't you know? Don't you know? Yeah, I know. Look what the Lord says. Fifteen, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Not only that, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias departed. I love that. Ananias said, okay. <laughs> Ananias departed and entered the house. And he laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, what a magnificent statement. The Lord sent me. That is Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he rose up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be astounded and were saying, is this not the one who in Jerusalem destroyed those that called on this name? 
and who had come here for the purpose of bringing him bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this one is the Christ. And please notice the quick return from the world. And when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to put him to death. Beloved, what a magnificent, glorious conversion. What a magnificent, glorious conversion where this man who was breathing threats with venom in his veins against the people of God, God in his grace approached. God in his grace broke through. And this man then went to preach. You imagine what the intro was like in, in Damascus. Have you guys met Saul? What? Yeah, well, we, we heard of him. Now, hold on, hold on. Let, you picture Ananias. Hear me out. <laughs> Hear me out. He's been converted. And we're told in other portions of Scripture that there was a little bit of, uh, they were a little slow to receive him right at first because they'd heard about him. They heard about what he was like prior to this. And I can't blame them, you guys. I mean, come on. Think about that. Say there's somebody persecuting the church hardcore, and they come to PCBC, and they say, hey, it's okay. I just want to be with you guys this morning because I believe what you believe. Now, I'm, I'm not a complete cynic, but yeah, right. I would have second guessing for that individual. But eventually, the Lord established this man as a champion for the gospel. Uh, for, for time's sake, let me just direct your attention if you're writing down notes. Acts 22, verses 6 to 20, and Acts 26, 12 to 19, where he reiterates his conversion story. So basically, Acts 7 and 8 and 9, Acts 22 and Acts 26 will give you plenty of biography of a sketch of this man if you wish to go after and study that. So what about Paul's ministry experience? We saw him prior to conversion, then we've seen his conversion, and we're told that he then immediately begins to proclaiming. Uh, that's, a, that's a fairly fascinating thing, a phenomenon, if you will. When you see somebody come to Christ, there's this natural indication, or, or inclination, rather, in the life of a new believer, they can't keep it in. My mentor, after he came to Christ, just out, right, fresh out of the world, a uh, natural man living for himself came to Christ, and then Tony said he, he was just sharing Christ with friends the next day. He, he could not, not. He's got to share. He's got to share that. He's got to get the word out. And you see that in new believers. Now, my hope and prayer is you see that in all believers, but sometimes we can get dusty over the years, and our passion starts to dim in how we want to tell people about Christ. But Saul's first impulse after, impulse after conversion was, I must herald this. So where's he go? To the synagogue. Starts heralding, starts declaring, he really is God. Jesus Christ is God. I've been persecuting the wrong side. I've been on the wrong side this whole time. The scriptures have been directing everybody towards Christ. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures that I've mastered, that all the Pharisees talk about and work through, we did not have the key to the text. 
I couldn't unlock my Old Testament, but now I have the key to the text. I have Jesus. And as I, as I take my, my, my special decoder ring and I look through the Old Testament scriptures, he's everywhere. I have Christ. The whole Old Testament was pointing towards this guy, and I was persecuting him. I was persecuting his people. I was going so far against God with a passion thinking I was following God. And now I've done a complete 180. Beloved, could you imagine the boosting of the faith of the early, new, of the early church seeing the testimony from this man? Could you imagine getting together and, and sitting in a, in a church or, or a church or a, a home, the church gathers, and Saul comes in and he starts preaching, and you're sitting there going, there's no way. There's no way. Not that guy. He was on our list. Public enemy number one for the church. This guy's coming after us. I just, man, you know, that's a question that sometimes you hear preachers ask. If you could hear any, any individual in church history preach, who would you want to go hear? Well, you say Jesus, so that way you win, right? But then you go, okay, but not Jesus. So who else? And you'll hear people say, oh, I'd love to hear Spurgeon. Oh, oh to hear Luther uh, or, or to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones. Oh, that'd be so fantastic or whatever. George Whitfield is typically my answer. But to sit and look at the Apostle Paul, freshly converted from where he had been, and to experience a man fresh out of conversion unfold the Old Testament scriptures in light of Jesus Christ. I got goosebumps going right now thinking about what it would be like to be in that presence. God took an impossible man because he had an impossible task and he crushed it. And now he's going to use it. The interesting thing, did you notice what the Lord said to Ananias at the whole kickoff? He said he's a chosen instrument of mine and I'll show him how much he'll suffer for my name's sake. Beloved, from the very beginning after his conversion, he was told, you will suffer for Jesus Christ. How much? A lot. He was called to be a minister of the word. These are just a few things that I want to read off to you. Called to be a minister of the word. He pursued the Jews with the gospel, but particularly was separated unto the Gentiles by God. That's said numerous times in the book of Acts and in, in his letters, that God particularly set him apart to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. I believe in part because he is the best defender against the false teaching of the Jews of the day, because he understood their arguments better than they did, far better than they did. And he defended the Gentiles from that false teaching. One reason. Numerous, long, difficult, but fruitful missionary journeys starting and shepherding local churches. You hear about Paul's missionary journeys, his first and his second, his missionary journeys as he's traveling, as he's building these churches, or starting these churches, but also instructing. A year and six months he stayed in Corinth and pouring in teaching of the word. Very, very heavily persecuted. Let me... Let me just give you a glimpse of that. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16.
I'm going to pick it up at actually 24, just time sake kind of squeeze this, because I just want to give you, we'll say 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so. And what does he point to as a true minister of Christ? He says, I'm a true minister of Jesus. Well, how do we know that, Paul? Far, or more, more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, in beatings without number, in frequent danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship, in many, many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold and without enough clothing. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who's made to stumble without my burning concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Just taking one little piece of his grocery list there and putting that into your life. When was the last time you were whipped 39 times? When was your last shipwreck? Where's Bill? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Danger everywhere you turn. False brothers, people who want to trick you. They beat you with rods. They, people come, they, they tie you down, and they, they hit your body with rods over and over and over again. Your back's opened up, and then it calluses over, and then they open it up again. You ever wonder what this man's physical form looked like by the end of his life? When the disciples came, and they, they took his body and, and buried him, what, what did that man's frame look like? With that kind of a grocery list, you don't, you don't take that kind of treatment and then come away pristine. So much so, in Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says, I bear the brand marks of Christ in my body. I've been branded as a believer. Well, what's the brand of a believer look like? Scars, covered in them. This man's ministry was a ministry of revival and intense suffering. Isn't that fascinating? His ministry, if you look at it and say, what are the two primary components? Revival, what I mean by revival is glorious spreading of the good news of the gospel of Jesus, churches founded, and glorious things happening in etern for eternity's sake. Simultaneously, 
he's trashed. Physically, lied about, emotionally attacked. Just read the book of 2 Corinthians, beloved. It's one of the most personal books of the Apostle Paul as far as what this guy endured as a Christian. The Lord took an impossible man with an impossible task and he crushed him and he used him profoundly. And what, what just amazes me about the Apostle Paul is this man never boasts in his abilities. He never says, hey, I'm a better orator than you. Hey, I'm smarter than you. Hey, I've got a better pedigree than you. No, rather, he says, look at my body. It's been destroyed. I've been heavily persecuted. They've had their way with me. And God's power is still shining so bright through the ministry. And they just keep beating me and beating me, and yet Christ shines more and more glorious. Guys, what does the world do with an individual that's not scared to die? Not scared to be beat up? Not scared to be mocked? Not scared to be slandered? But his response is, I'll boast in the weakness, I'll boast in the beatings, that Christ might be magnified in me. I can't help but think at some point there were some guards that were talking with one another, and they're like, I can't stand this guy. We beat him, and he's kind. We lock him up, and they start singing. Oh, you imagine the guards. I'm so sick of their songs. It's like the classic statement, was the guard handcuffed to, or was Saul handcuffed to the guard, or was the guard handcuffed to Paul? This man endured intense suffering and intense blessing throughout his ministry. Paul was profoundly used throughout his ministry in the defense of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the exclusivity of the gospel. He was used to write 13 or possibly 14 inspired New Testament books. His writings were considered to be scripture by the early church. 2 Peter 3.16, Peter makes reference to the writings of the Apostle Paul, and he makes the statement that, in, Paul writes thing, some things that are hard to understand and others seek to twist it and do damage to it like they do with the rest of the scriptures. Which shows that even in his own day, they recognized the Pauline writing as inspired scripture from God. Eventually, martyred for his faith in Jesus that he once persecuted. The Romans... One, one. First and foremost, Paul recognized himself as one thing and one thing only. He was a slave to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Apart from all other things, he was a purchased slave in the service of his master. His life was not his own. His will was totally subject to the sovereign good pleasure of his owner. Think about this, you guys. So this letter is delivered. They're reading this to the local church. And the first thing it says is Paul. And they go, yeah, we know we know it's a letter from Paul. Paul, a, and what would you expect? Grand Poobah, a great teacher, the man of men, the lead apostle, all these kinds of glorious titles you could give. Paul, a slave. 
Now, your Bible may say servant. I think a much more accurate translation is slave, like my brother Mitch was saying. It's in reference to somebody who is sold. It's in reference to somebody who is owned. This Greek word doulos, it means slave. It's not his will. It's the will of his master. It's not his life. It's the life that is owned by the master. That's, that's jarring. That's shocking. But it's also extremely telling about the Apostle Paul's perspective on himself. That the first word that comes to his mind in reference to himself before God and to that local church is, I am owned by Jesus Christ. Remember, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that you were purchased with a price. You were bought with a price. Purchased, you're not your own, and he lives according to the will of his master. If you look, guys, at, the, at that first verse, he could have said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, which he says, but he doesn't say that first. He says that in other letters, but rather here he's setting a precedent for this church. As far as we best understand, the apostle Paul had not been to Rome. He had not met these believers. He has a desire to get there and meet these believers. So he wants to explain who he is between his ears, his best understanding theologically to that church. Who are you, Paul? I'm a slave. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus. And what, what is fascinating about this is that it's a removal of Paul's being in charge, of Paul's greatness, of Paul's leadership, of Paul's magnificence. He's holding Jesus up, not Paul. His desire is not to be seen as one of God's greats, his desire is to be seen as one who has a great God. I'm a slave of Jesus. It'd be interesting if somebody asked you someday, so what do you do? I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. It'd just be interesting to see their facial expression. You know, take out your phone, be ready for a picture as soon as you say it and see how it goes. But that is who you are if you are in Christ. See, that's what's interesting is the Scripture speaks with great clarity about our freedom. You've been set free. Simultaneously, it speaks of your slavery to Christ. I challenge you, just look up that word slave and see how many times that word doulos is used throughout your New Testament in reference to you. So we see his position here. Uh, my three words are position, authority, and commission. Position, authority, and commission. So his position is, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, look at his authority. Called as an apostle, or you could reverse that. A more literal would be a called apostle. The idea there is that he, has, he is one who has been summoned. He has been put in place. This word apostolos, it means a delegate an emissary, a messenger, a representative, an ambassador, somebody who goes in place of somebody else, someone who's representing, representing another. So it's not about his authority. It's not about who he is. He's there in place of. He's an ambassador, a representative of the Lord Jesus. 
I'm a slave of Christ, but I'm also a sent out one, an, an apostolos. Called to be an apostle by the Lord Jesus directly, Acts 9, a witness of the resurrected, of the resurrected Christ in a sense, Acts 9, and a human author of 13 or 14 books of inspired, inerrant writing. But it's not his authority. In other words, there's nothing in Paul that grants Paul authority. A really good verse that attaches to that idea is when he's speaking to the Bereans, and he said, the Bereans were more noble, for they searched the scriptures daily to see if that which was being taught by Paul, by Paul was true. Now, if it was simply his authority as, hey, I'm the guy, why would he encourage them and say they're more noble to check out what he was teaching? No, it wasn't his authority. It's Christ's authority. He's an ambassador in place of Jesus. So his position is I'm a slave in Christ. His authority is I'm here with the stamp of God on my ministry. And number three, his commission. Paul was a marked man set apart for a particular task in the kingdom. Now, beloved, every last one of you who's in Christ, you are under the Great Commission, going to the world, make disciples, so on and so forth. But I find it very fascinating the language God uses towards Ananias. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. There's a particular selection of the Apostle Paul for this task. And you hear this language used throughout the book of Acts that he was set apart unto the Gentiles to bear the good news, the gospel, unto the Gentiles. God set him particularly to spread the gospel in a profound way. I mean, we're told in the New Testament that the, we have the foundation of the apostles. So there's a foundation being set by these apostles at the beginning of the early church. And the apostle Paul is right there, and yet the man in humility over and over makes reference to himself as a slave, but then goes so far as to saying, I am the chief of sinners. He makes reference to himself as I am the least of the apostles. This is not a man who consistently shows his resume and holds out his rank. This is a man who sees I am in Christ and there is no greater truth. That's why in Philippians 3, when he gives that list of his pedigree, he says, but I consider it all as rubbish in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. All that stuff the Jews said was so fantastic. Compared to the supremacy and the glory and my righteousness in Jesus, it is dung. <laughs> Lastly, there's that great word, the apostle's heart. The apostle's heart. And this isn't in verse 1. I just want to give you a list. The apostle had a passion and a love for his own people. Romans chapter 9, verse 3, he says he would give up his own salvation if it meant salvation for them. Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he says, my, my heart for my people is that they may be saved, for they have a righteousness but not according to knowledge. They're not walking in Christ. And you see his language for his own Jewish nation, his own people. He had a passion for them to come to Jesus. He also had a passionate love for the lost in general and the Gentiles. 
You see how he is persecuted, heavily persecuted, but out of love for them continues. He had a driving love for the church of Jesus Christ. This guy took so many hits physically, emotionally, over and over and over again, and sustained by God's grace, he pursues God's church. And lastly, he had a passion for the glory of God. I've said this from this pulpit over and over and over again. I'll say it one more time and then a bunch more times. Um, One particular sign of a mature Christian is they love God to be glorified. They love seeing God. So a simple question for you guys as I close. Who in your mind is outside of the saving grace of God? If God broke through the the thick wall of this man's self-righteous, pharisaical spirit and brought him unto himself, And if he did that in you and in me, then there should be nobody on our no-way list of who the Spirit of God, by his grace, can penetrate their heart. And so let us be faithful to pray, to witness, and to pursue this world. Because the Apostle Paul blew everybody away, but it really wasn't him. It was the sovereign grace of God in the life of an impossible man. Our Father, thank you for your word.